Tonight on Arena, Lolita Chakrabarty on her stage hit The Life of Pi and David Bulger and Kosh Games dance film Breaking Brothers. You can text us on 51551 or tweet at RT Arena or watch the show on live stream at rt.ie forward slash arena. Breakin' Brothers is a new dance film from David Bulger, choreographer and artistic director of Kushkame, the dance theatre company which celebrates 30 years in existence this year. The short film tells the story of Christian and Cosmo, two brothers from the Dominican Republic who came to join their family in Tremor, years ago. It recalls difficulties with the English language and the Irish weather and racism before their breakdancing skills gave them a way in and a connection to their new home. Breaking Brothers will be shown at the Dublin International Film Festival later this month and I'm delighted that David Bulger is here with me in studio. But here's some of the music from the film which just shows the dynamic between the Breaking Brother duo and how wonderfully dynamic they are. So that's music from Breakin' Brothers, uh, which is the new film from Kush Came, which is going to be on at the Dublin International Film Festival. And David Bulger is here with me. So where did you meet these brothers and where did you get the idea of making a film about them? Hi, Kay. Um, I, I met Christian. Uh, I was working with Christian on a children's show called Francis Footwork, uh, which was um on in the uh, uh, a few years ago and and we were chatting just on on a tea break and I'd never worked with him before and he's a great dancer great break dancer and I just asked him about you know his history and he he said that when he moved to Ireland he they moved to Tremor with himself and his brother and his mom and his his dad and and um he said that what really helped him integrate into the community was his breakdance because they had very little English. So they expressed themselves in, in the park with, with breakdancing. And of course, that just sparked my imagination of the, the, the idea of dance and how, uh, you know, a dancer's uh, tool is, is their body and they're able to cross over boundaries of, of uh, you know, of countries, of, of uh, languages and that this universal language of dance kind of helped them, helped them integrate to uh, the, lo- the local community. So. And when you worked with him on this other show, was it breakdancing he was doing at that stage or were you choreographing him to do a different kind of dance? Uh, there was a bit of both. Um, he, they, they, they have um, like their breakdance is very acrobatic and dynamic. So I, I wanted uh, there was a character in the show that that uh, was had had was very dynamic and that kind of character. So I was able to work with him with his the breaking language, as it were. And uh, he is a trick where he spins on his head uh, several times. Um, and, and I wanted to use that because uh, he, the character was kind of ha- had the world turned upside down. So I thought it was a really nice uh, metaphor uh, to, to do physically. And then I heard this story and then I met his brother 
uh, Kevin. And I just found that the, the story just compelling, actually. Really compelling. So let's hear from Christian from the film Breaking Brothers. Uh, this is his own words in the clip from the film. I was born in Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo, the capital, 1996. I always liked dancing. Dancing is a big part of our culture because there is dancing everywhere. Kids from a young age, they're already moving, they're already grooving, you see in their blood. So I would go to buy dinner or lunch, and I would have to like squeeze between people doing salsa and bachata, partners, you know, so I always see it growing up. But then we moved to this place where they had break dancers close by. And every time I went to play basketball, I would pass by and I would see them. I was like, that's, that's cool, I'd love to try it. And yeah, that's how I started at the park, you know, just a local park from home. And then Cosmo joined a couple of days later. He joined the, he joined us to train as well. And then we were learning together. So that's Christian. And he's talking about his brother, Kevin, who Kevin. he also, Cosmo. Is Cosmo, his. yeah. They, they have dance names, um, which you learn in the film. Uh, he, his name was Little Cosmo and he drops the little. And he's known as uh, people in Dublin, he said, call him Cosmo. And uh, Christian's name is Foot Rocker. And it's uh, two names that were given to them, actually. Um, I, I didn't realise that, but they're kind of somebody else names the the dancer. Um, and his name was uh, Foot Rocker. So because um, his footwork is very fast and he was working in Foot Locker and they decided to put the two names together. So you learn about that and uh, kind of the culture around it and the culture around uh, street dance or break dancing. The yeah. first scene in the film, Breaking Brothers, is so dynamic. It's yeah. very much street dancing. They're in a bare room. They're dressed in very colourful clothes and they're doing, is that battling? What they, is that the yes, term? Yes, uh, it is. It, it's actually, um, I saw footage of their first dance battle in Dominican Republic and I actually, uh, we had footage of them practising it on their balcony. Just explain what a battle it, is. A battle, yeah. <laughs> I think you really need them here to explain. <laughs> it's, a, it's a battle uh, between two, generally two individuals, two dancers, and it is, um, they're kind of facing off to one another. So it's, it's not a contact, uh, they don't contact each other. Yes, and they're kind of outdoing each other or yeah. trying to outdo each other in this wonderful dance. Yeah, they're, they're, they're judged, but they're assessed on the quality of their movement or their musicality or their dance technique or the personality of the dancers. Plus, um, uh, I'm going to say tricks, but the, uh, uh, like uh, there's certain moves that they can hit or if the music stops or goes to a, a, a kind of a button, if the dancer goes to a freeze, what they call a baby freeze or freeze where they kind of be upside down on their, on their elbow. Um, and they hit the perfect beat on the music. Um, that's kind of it's point scoring, as it were. And then um, that continues on. So, so the opening of the film, when I saw the footage of their first battle, they were, I think, 12 and 14. And they're, they're really a load of attitude in, in the video and or in the video I saw. And I, I said, I'd really love to recreate that and see what it is like in in your bodies now what what is the the kind of the the uh the what's the history um and what does it feel like to dance that first 
uh, battle that you you did in Dominican Republic here in in our studio in Dublin. So I based the choreography all around that because I wanted that sense of the archive, uh, the archive of the dancing body and and uh, how how it, it we store all these dances in 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 the body and probably remember the muscle memory, you know. And as a choreographer, are you very aware of break dancing? Could you communicate? Did you have the same language? Yeah, I mean, I I I I wasn't doing quite what what they were doing, but I, I learned the 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 some of the rules or some of the uh, some of the moves uh, and what they were called, um, which was great because there's a whole dictionary of of language around it that I don't know and learned some of the history. It's hugely um, it's it's got great history and and culture around it. It's um, you know it's it's kind of comes from African American, the Latino uh, culture, street culture, and there's several the the. There's the dance of it, but there's emceeing, there's DJing, there's graffiti. Um, so it so it's part of a kind of a. It feels like a lifestyle in a way. It's it like it, it's a, it's a it's a. It, uh, what do you say, a vocation? Yes, and it's the, the whole centre of gravity is so low, isn't it? Everything yeah. is low on the floor. Very and low. there's such artistry and, and uh, you know, gymnastics yeah. so low on the ground. Yeah, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm really interested in telling stories with, with choreography and, and um, trying to learn that language and trying to see how we could how we could narrate or f- or find em- emotions within the within the breakdancing language uh, was really interesting um, with with the, with the boys very closely and we 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 used to meet uh, we didn't kind of rehearse for the film we kind of met over long time spells of time to try and develop that and learn slowly about each other you know so that was nice so then it switches from this very street scene even though it, it it's done in an internal room to a park but then. Then there's a scene where they wear suits yeah. and they're set in a very urban setting. Talk us into that scene. Yeah, um, I, just one day I happened to, they, they, I asked them would they bring in some photographs of them dancing, um, which actually are in the film. And then they also brought in kind of more family uh I just wanted to get a, f- a feel for them and their families and, uh, you know, without without going too heavily into it. But I just wanted to see and um, I saw both of them in suits uh, for some occasion. And I just it just dawned on me to try and um, I asked them would they like to dance in suits and they immediately said, yeah. So so th- that started to kind of form what the scene would be and I wanted to bring their dancing out onto the streets. So I said, why don't we dress up for this bit? Why don't, why don't we dress in really, you know, really sharp fitting suits and dance all over all over the street in, in different locations. And it's cut together, cut what's called jump cuts, which are, you know, very fast succession uh, edits, as it were, and it kind of, ju- you can jump from place to place really quickly. And then they, we responded to each each space as we went along. I mean, we choreographed in the studio, but we knew where we wanted to dance each, each part. So um, that's kind of how that scene was informed. And I, I just wanted something that was, a bit of fun that showed their personalities uh, a lot because they're they they're they're great sense of humour the two of them they they've great camaraderie and I love the fact that they're they have just this lovely relationship as brothers. Yeah, talking about lovely relationships, film and dance has yeah. a lovely relationship, hasn't it? You know, like more and more we're seeing fantastic dynamic films about dance. Is that an area that excites you? And and how, how did oh, you take to it, David? Absolutely, uh, it it it's um 
I mean, it, it's such a great medium for dance because you can almost think of the audience as a partner in that dance because the camera, you can bring the camera right in to, uh, to the dancer's bodies where, you know, on stage it's very hard to do that, obviously. So you can, you can get very dynamic um, choreography within the camera. So you, you, you try to choreograph the camera and uh, we had a fantastic cinematography of Jazz Foley who was incredible. And I think when, when you see the film, you'll see he was not afraid to get that camera in really close to some very dangerous acrobatic dynamic dancing and it's really I think there's a really nice relationship between the camera and the dancer Then there's a scene um, a little later again now the film is only 22 minutes 24 minutes. 24 yeah, yeah, minutes, yeah. yeah. 24 minutes. And that has, it's in Emma and it's, there's a bower on. Yeah. Tell us about that scene. I really want, I, I, I kept thinking about how to uh, use something that from our own, from the Irish culture in, in the film. And I kept kind of thinking, how was I going to do it? And it just dawned on me one day that the bower on being such a rhythmic uh, instrument, uh, would be fantastic to have like set up a kind of a battle between a baron player who's Ronan O'Snodig in the in the film and the the brothers and Ronan is so uh, expressive when he moves and he's also an incredible musician and an incredible artist and I got in touch with him and asked him and told him about the, the film and he just said yes which was fantastic and I got him into the studio and I just realised that Ronan moves a lot and his playing and the rhythmic structures of what he was playing and how the dancers were responding to that so that that was uh, that was a real gift in a way that to find that so I wanted to finish the film on something that had that mixture of doing something slightly different and uh trying to wrap up the film as it were and give a bit of fireworks at the end so Yes and there's a lovely moment with the brothers at the end what are you hoping what were you what were you hoping to say in the film? Um, that's a good question I, I think the, the whole idea of of the the, the, the body as as like almost like the suitcases they they travel and the, here's this language that they have and they bring and also that um, the mixing mixing cultures like he, as you heard they, they're, they're talking about in Dominican Republic a lot of people dance and dance on the street and you know we, we are getting better at, at dancing and expressing ourselves in, in movement in, in Ireland but it's not it wouldn't be our first you um, wouldn't be the first thing you think of all the time and I, I just love the, the sense that people dance I, I mean I believe people dance all the time because we're we're constantly walking the streets and doing little dances that we don't even know about and uh, I suppose it's just that joy and just the 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 act of being able to express yourself through through movement and the skill and the dedication required in in that and that to kind of demystify it as well is that we can all really get something from this. So Breaking Brothers is going to be on on the 29th of February. But as I said, you're celebrating 30 years of Cush yeah, Game. Can you recall on, f- where, how it started out? I, I do. I in 1995, I got on a train from Connolly Station to Belfast and I knew that um, Una McCarthy who was the artistic director of the Old Museum Art Centre was presenting a dance uh, festival a small dance festival called the 
Dance Time Festival, I think it was called, if I remember. And I kind of, I had one piece made, which was a short piece. um, That you were performing. That I was performing. And I went and said, uh, Una, I have this full evening of dance that I'd really like to to premiere in in Belfast. And um, I kind of didn't have the full programme there. I just kind of... You lied. I, well, I, you know, I, 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 I just bended. The, you I was dressed in front of her. I was yeah. a bit flexible. Yeah, well, actually, she was really encouraging and she said, oh, we'd love to have you come. And I got back on the train back to Dublin and thought, oh, my, how am I going to, how am I going to organise this? I, I can't, you know, how am I going to administrate it and organise the dancers and get them into Belfast and all that? Because that wouldn't be what I'm good at. And I met uh, our executive producer, actually, Bridget Webster, and she had said to me, you know, if you ever need any help, just give me a call. Well, I tell you, I picked up that phone. I said, help. (laughs) And we literally formed uh, uh, an artistic relationship uh, 30 years ago and still we're still there. You know, it's still happening. Um, and you and just do such a range of work now. You yeah, do you, you choreograph shows for Cush Game. Yeah. Then you work with Druid yeah. and other theatre companies. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, like my career I'm so lucky and I'm so lucky with the people I get to work with uh, you know um, and the people in Cush Game and the th- I was trying to think the thousands of artists and uh, that we've worked with that has helped and the, our funders the Arts Council uh, you know Dublin City Council all this like the support we've had is absolutely f- phenomenal I'm really humbled by it and I'm I'm I quite shocked that we're in our 30th year and we're still going and we still have that desire to push into new areas and, and, and new things. So you have a film, Breaking yeah. Brothers, which is new things. And now you have uh, a new show. A Tell new us show. about that. Yeah, well, it's a very big show. Uh, it's called Palimpsest and it is um, it's part of um, what was an uh, uh, open call by the Arts Council for Arts, Arts Project 2023, uh, although we're doing it in 2024 and it's conclusion of the decade of centenaries and I had been involved in uh, several uh, I did I, I did a centenary for the RTE which was an amazing experience and I did um, I did a, 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 a piece for Crow Park on the, on the pitch in Crow Park and I did a piece in our piece called These Rooms in 2016 so I had all yes. this research about about the birth of the state and I wanted to 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 look at that again with all that knowledge and the end of the decade of centenaries seemed like a good way. So what what we're doing is we're we're creating a piece that looks at moments, key moments of Irish history and kind of uses that to, to in a contemporary body to make a new piece of work or a new piece of art. So we're kind of trying to dance with our history and sing. They're singing and there's new music and there's uh, some poetry. Um, and we're kind of putting it all together to make this new work. It's called Palimpsest. And which means? Which means it's something reused or altered, uh, but still remains, it still has traces of its earliest form. So I was curious about history repeating itself and images, our, our image bank that we've collected in the last hundred years and kind of dancing with them a little bit and finding artistic triggers in them. And it's part of the St. Patrick's Day Festival, um, which is brilliant. It's, it's a perfect fit for us at, at, at the complex. And it takes place, uh, we've a, I have a, quite a large cast, which is brilliant because 
a lot of times, particularly since, you know, coming back after COVID and, you know, things have got a bit smaller. But with this, I had the flexibility, th- thankfully, puts the funding that we were able to y- use uh, artists that, uh, you know, from, from many different forms, because I was really interested in playing with form and pushing it. I think the, the, I've just come from rehearsals and I'm so excited about it. It, it just has really inspired well, my Well, it sounds my like energy. you are thriving on your in your 30th year I'm so thankful and I'm really as I say I'm really humbled by it and the amount of great artists that I work with is just phenomenal and inspiring and now I don't know if we said that the music we played was by uh, composed by Dennis Dennis Glassy and Breaking Brothers will be screened at the Lighthouse Cinema at 6.30 on the 29th of February as part of this year's International Film Festival further details from diff.ie and a kushcame.com. Congratulations David. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you Kate. The 2001 novel The Life of Pi by Jan Martel is one of the most loved winners of the Booker Prize. It's the story of an epic journey by boat by Pi, a 16-year-old boy escaping the horror of a cargo ship sinking in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Unfortunately for the boy, he is accompanied in the lifeboat by a hyena, an orangutan, a zebra and a royal Bengal tiger by the name of Richard Parker. The book was made into a film in 2012 by Ang Lee, with CGI bringing Richard Parker and the other animals to life. However, the show was subsequently turned into an Olivia Award-winning theatre show, with puppets representing the zoo animals. Before Pai goes on his epic journey, he helps his father, who owns a local zoo in India. Let's listen to a clip from the show's original cast. Once upon a time, I lived in Pondicherry's Botanical Gardens in the zoo. It was a huge zoo, spread over acres and acres, big enough for a train to explore. But now it's so small, it fits in my head. were really annoying. Our life was idyllic, but the government was in turmoil, arguing and trying to control everything. There were riots on the streets. People stopped coming to our zoo. But my father, he never stopped trying. He thought a Bengal tiger would bring in new business. Richard Parker! I'm delighted to be joined by the writer of the award-winning stage show of The Life of Pi, Lolita Chakrabarty. Lolita, the show opens in the Borgosh Theatre on Tuesday, February 27th. Could you recall the story The Life of Pi, written by Anne Martel, for our listeners before we get into how you adapted it for the stage? Um, The story is about um, a 16-year-old boy called Pi Patel who lives in Pondicherry with his family, who own a zoo. 
and due to political unrest, um, the family uh, the the family decide to emigrate to Canada, and they take their animals um, on a ship, uh, and they set sail. Uh, sadly, the ship um, sinks, and uh, Pi's family are lost at sea, um, but he survives on a lifeboat with an orangutan, a Bengal tiger, a zebra, and a hyena. And the story is about his 227 days at sea and how he survives and who survives with him. And he ends up in a hospital in Mexico at the end where the, um, the uh, Japanese shipping officials who own the ship that sank come to investigate what happened. Now, how did it come about that you adapted it for the stage? So I was asked by the producer, Simon Friend, um, uh, if I would like to... Uh, tackle this task Um, and I read the book when it first came out in the early 2000s and absolutely loved it I just read it as a punter Um, so I without really knowing how I would do it I just said yes it is a daunting task because it is a, the, the most of the book is about pie in in the high seas with this array of animals with him. So when you're talking about the stage, something you're going to have to to look at and um, and see the animals, I presume, um, that is quite a daunting task. Do you know it is? I totally agree with you, but I'm quite backwards, I think, in going forward. So I didn't think of it as daunting. I thought, oh, how exciting! And, uh, and I thought, how am I going to tell the story? Um, how do I tackle it? How do I make it happen? And it wasn't until our first preview in Sheffield in 2019. And literally, as the audience were coming in, I thought, oh, my God, what was I thinking? That I could actually tell this story. Um, so I guess without having that um, sense of uh, fear, actually it allowed me just to throw myself at the story and, and see what I could do with it. Now, as you explained, the book ends with Pi coming ashore in Mexico and he is interviewed about what's happened. But you flipped that ending to the beginning. Yes, I did. It's funny, isn't it? Because a book is such a personal, um, it's such a personal relationship between mm-hmm. you and the novel. And I guess when I read the book, to me, it was a no brainer that the Japanese shipping officials who I have altered to be a Canadian diplomatic official and a Japanese shipping official, um, that that was the way to tell the story, that their investigation into what happened to the ship actually allows Pi, a bit like the Ancient Mariner, which is one of my favourite poems, to be um you know, absolutely impelled. He had to tell this story to somebody. So when they ask him what happened, he has to tell them what happened at sea. Now, did you talk to Jan Martel before you wrote the adaptation or have you spoken to him since? Did you get any advice from him? Um, Yeah, I met Jan when I was first put, when I first accepted the job. Um, And he was very generous and open-handed. And he said, you do whatever you want with it which was extraordinary, really, because this is such a well-loved book and such a popular, famous, modern classic. But I do remember asking him, uh, what's the real story? Because there's a there's a dual story in it, mm-hmm. that Pi is on this boat with these four animals, or is Pi on the boat with three other people? And, um, and which is the true story? Because horrific things happen on this ship, you know, murder and death and cannibalism and all sorts of things and you're sort of thinking oh what's the true story and so I said to Jan can you tell me which is the real story because I need to know as the writer I need to know which path to follow and he was absolutely unequivocal he said the true story is the animals
And what was brilliant about that is that it made me write the story in a certain kind of way where you just hopefully you are left thinking, I don't know which is the true story. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, I would not have thought he was going to say that. No, no, me neither. But what was brilliant about it was it totally opened up for me the dilemma of the book, which is why I loved the book, where you're thinking, what actually happened on that lifeboat? So Jan was really helpful. He he was very hands off. Uh, I sent him versions of the drafts as we went along. He gave uh, lots of notes, some of which I took and some of which I didn't. But he was very um, generous with the ones that I didn't. Um, and he gave us a really key note, which was that the animals have to be scary because it could be easily done that, you know, you interpret puppets and we sort of we become a little bit too um, easy with them. But what's really important for the story is these are wild animals and they are dangerous. Now, great advice uh, that is and great insight you've got from Jan Martel. But there's still yeah. the big um, um, orangutan in the in the room, which is how are you going yeah. to bring the animals to a stage and make them not cute, make them frightening and menacing? Yeah, well, that's where this amazing team of creatives uh, who are working on this show. Um, I mean, everybody bought their A-game. So we had um, Finn Caldwell and Nick Barnes who co-designed the puppets. And Finn is also our movement director along with Max Webster, who's the overall director. And Finn, Max and myself worked. Once I'd done the first draft, we did several workshops of how do we make, uh, A, for Finn, how do we make the animals come to life? What are they going to be? And B, what is the relationship between the animals and the people? And how do we make this something that is believable um, as a as a story so that you're in it, the audience is in it with you while you're telling it? Um, so it was a it was a big old collaboration. And Finn and Nick came up with the most beautiful uh, but working visceral kinds of puppets that are inhabited by a team of very um, experienced and skilled puppeteers. So Richard Parker, who's the tiger, is operated by a rotating group of three puppeteers, one at the head, one in the heart, inside the puppet, and one at the feet and the tail. And uh, when you see Richard Parker off stage when he's hung up waiting, um, you know, he's beautiful, but he's not living. And then when the puppeteers uh, get into him and are operating him, he suddenly becomes this ferocious beast. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because the whole story is uh, it's it's a bit of a fable, as well, because you can't imagine a boy on a boat with these wild animals. So it has to have a, a beauty about it, a storytelling about it. But you have to really believe in the characters and the animals when they're living on stage. And I think. Uh, I mean, I would say this, right, because it's my production, but I think we've achieved it. That's right, because it, as along with you winning uh, an Olivier for the best new play, the, it was the puppeteers, the people who were animating the animals, also won jointly the best supporting actor, Olivier, uh, that year. Yes, that was a fabulous moment. I think puppetry is not, uh, when I speak to the puppeteers and the puppeting community, I think it's not always recognised as an acting skill. And uh, it was so thrilling to see the seven of them, um, the six actual operators of the of Richard Parker and, and the actor playing the cook, who's the voice of Richard Parker, um, winning uh, a supporting actor, Olivier, because it was really well-deserved. They work so um, seamlessly together 
it is. Puppeteers are extraordinary to watch because they have to breathe together and um, really anticipate each other's moves because things do go wrong. It's live, right? And things happen on stage where you have to adapt and they have to be completely um, in tune with each other to make the puppets work. So it was thrilling to see them win. And, they, and it was so unexpected. They were all like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and the show opened in Sheffield for a small run. Then it transferred to the West End and then subsequently to New York. And now it's an international success. Has it changed hugely? Have, have you changed it either in performance or have you changed the writing as it's gone on? Um, it's been changed, yeah, constantly. It's a living beast, right, a mm-hmm. play. And as it um, as it moves from different venue to venue, there are sort of practical things that you have to change because entrances are slightly different or uh, the set has changed a little bit, you know, so there's things that you have to respond to that way. But when we went to America, there was quite a lot of um, changes that need to, needed to happen for an American audience because, of course, I don't realise I write with a very British voice. And um, so there were certain, um, I'd say, Americanisms that I needed just to adapt. Um, and then for the tour, um, this is a it's a huge show and it's a spectacular show. But there are certain, again, practical considerations that I have had, I've had to incorporate. Um, but it's essentially the same show. It's the same story. It's uh, it's just the stuff that you have to keep um, alive so that it stays fresh and it doesn't get stale. Uh, you were a working actress before you wrote this adaptation. Does Do those acting skills help when it comes to playwriting? I am a working actress, actually. I'm in a play at the moment. Um, so, yes, absolutely. It's a really good, um, uh, it's very complimentary. It's a really complimentary skill because I'm used to being inside a piece and looking at it from one character's point of view. I mean, it's 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 a stretch to write something where you have to write everybody. So that's been a huge learning curve for me is how to um, do an overall structure, an overall story. But I think they're very complementary skills. Yeah. A, a great friend of this programme is uh, Maggie O'Farrell and you uh-huh. adapted her play or her book, Hamlet to the yeah. Stage. Uh, again, yeah. that is the story of the young child of, of Shakespeare's only son who died as a young yeah. boy. What was it like yeah. working with Maggie on that? Well, again, I mean, Maggie was like Jan, very, very generous. So I met her when I was um, when I'd accepted the job and just to sort of meet and say, oh, it's me. You're giving your baby to me. Um, and then she was also very open handed and said, yeah, it's yours. Do what you feel. And um, then she read two or three drafts and gave me feedback and notes and very detailed because her research was so extensive, you know, so she'd give me details and notes on uh, thoughts and words that she thought would suit better. Um, but she was very generous, actually. She let it go. I think I'm hugely in awe of these novelists. I mean, my God, they spend these are great weighty tomes of uh, literature, right, that have affected so many people. And yet um, both of them were very aware that um, this is a, a different skill. Theatre is a different, a different skill. Uh, the Life of Pi has brought mo- so much joy as a novel to people. What, how would you, what would you say to people who are going to see this theatre show? What would you hope that they would come away with from it? I hope they have a really good time. That's the first uh, first thing. It is entertainment. 
Um, I think it's a really beautiful show, and it's um, it's it it's got so many uh, different creative aspects to it. So it's got fantastic design, a fantastic company of actors, puppets, video projections, sound, music. I mean, it's a feat for the senses. Um, but it's also it is the story of Life of Pi of the novel, but it's a thing of itself. We've reinvented it into a thing of itself. So come and see. Come and see what you make of it if you've read the book. And if you haven't read the book, that's great as well. It's not necessary. Lalita Chakrabarti, thank you so much for talking to us. And we're looking forward to The Life of Pi coming to the Borgosh Theatre on Tuesday, February 27th. You're listening to Friday Night's Arena. Time to take a look at the latest album releases. And today we will discuss Paloma Faith's sixth album, The Glorification of Sadness, and one in which the artist seems to truly bear her soul. Also releasing his sixth album, Irish singer-songwriter Mark Geary, and it's called The Time of the Locust. And finally... Bristol rock band Idols released Tank, an album that portrays a distinct shift in sensibility for them. Joining me in studio this evening to discuss all three are Dave Hanratty and Sinead Neve Vorder. You're very welcome. First up, we have Paloma Faith, the artist who rose to fame at the same time as Adele. And sadly, like Adele, her marriage has broken down and she has released what appears to be her divorce album, The Glorification of Sadness. This is Cry on the Dance Floor. Sounds chirpy enough there. Cry on the dance floor from the glorification of sadness, Paloma Faith. Sinead, bring us into the background of this, the glorification of sadness. It's been a difficult few years personally for Paloma Faith. It has indeed, yeah. Um, a lot has gone through her life. She's gone through, as he mentioned, like Adele, um, not quite a divorce, but a separation from her partner of 10 years after having two children. Uh, COVID hit. She didn't have um, her, her studio, I guess, mixing wizards around her. But, you know, she's... She's a testament to her own strength, really. You know, um, it's it's album number six in a 17 year long career. And I guess to achieve that kind of success within the music industry and as a woman is a testament to her hard graft, her tenacity, her her perseverance as well. And she was quite aware of her position at this age as well. And the fact that she has, you know, a, a breakup and that apparently she was deemed to be um, the problem behind it. So she had a lot of that to deal with in the public. Um, but basically, she's kind of, empowered through the whole process whilst it works in chronological order in in terms of her grief and her sadness and the breakup um, she's determined not to paint herself as the victim in this and she said that tends to be glorified by women in a sense Yes because it would be fair to say that that's not well that's representative of some of the songs on the album but a lot of them are more anthem like More anthem like more yeah about women empowerment um, you know basically saying that you know we're strong we're in command of our own happiness and we're going to be brave and sometimes make mistakes but done with our heads held high and that's what she was saying about whilst yeah it it was an awful time going through sad 
sadness and grief. She wanted to add a bit of a cherry on top of it and call it the, the glorification of sadness. And as well as that, being, finding herself alone in her basement, she decided to take on producing duties and engineering duties herself. So she's achieved quite a lot with this album. Uh, so Dave, is it a bit reductive to say this is a, a breakup album or a divorce album or, you know, is and is that a, a kind of album that you're interested in? Uh, well, I haven't gone through the process of divorce or anything, but um, no, I don't think it's reductive at all. I think it's accurate based on her life experience. And like, that's what artists do. They pour their life experience into their art. Well, most of them do anyway. I mean, you can always go down the fictional route and I'm sure you can mix all that kind of stuff with your real life and so on and so forth. Um, what It's reductive in terms of music, though, I think. I will say I love the title. I think The Glorification of Sadness is an excellent title. It kind of conjures up all kinds of imagery. And you might think you're getting some kind of, you know, sad piano-based balladry across the bow here, but you're not. Instead, you're getting kind of like along the lines of what we just heard there. And I must say that song, uh, Cry on the Dance Floor, I believe it's called. Um, oh, it just sounds like it's escaped from two decades ago. There are songs here that sounds like they escaped from the last decade. I mean, it, it all felt so cynical to me. I didn't buy it. And like, you know, far be it for me, and I was saying this to Sinead uh, as we were waiting to come in, that like the last thing I want to do is be the guy who says, down with this feminist album. I'm all for feminism and feminist music. That's all great. I just think that this one felt mechanical and cheap to me. I didn't really buy it. I mean, she's gone through the experience, absolutely. But the songs, I just found them so grating, uh, overbearing. This thing is so overproduced. And also, lastly, it's 17 tracks long. <laughs> <laughs> and I cannot justify that and nor can this She's album. She's obviously got a lot to go through as 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 Sinead explained. She's had a rough time. You didn't like that first track that we played Cry on the Dance Floor either, Sinead. It's possibly one of the worst songs I think I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, and it's it's one of those songs that maybe will probably potentially do well and do well on the dance floor. But I, I guess, you know, with me, I mean, pop is not something, it's not a genre I gravitate towards naturally or neither her vocals. I um it irks me a little bit. Sometimes she sounds amazing, but I guess I'm more of a Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Ella James kind of girl. But um, with crying the dance floor, there's just it just sounds so fake. There's that uh, the drum beats, which are very tinny and trebly, and that. Um, quite annoying synthesizer the ridiculous repetitive one note okay well maybe we'll go to bad woman that's a bit more anthony and maybe give her a fairer run who can have the glory while i drive into the sunset i'm not a go go i'm a bad woman i'm not a go go i'm a bad woman and you can't be this way So bad woman there from the glorification of sadness, Paloma Faith's new new album. So Sinead, is that, I mean, you, Dave is quite black against it, not against <laughs> feminist music, but just against Paloma Faith's take on it. Mm. What about you? Do you, you seem to uh, be split between the tracks? I guess I, I'm more appreciative of her background and where she has come from. You know, I mean, she started out being a very shy child, apparently. Uh, her mum decided to help her with her confidence by uh, bringing her to dance school. You know, she's she's got an... Uh, and I may in, in dance performance, she's she's continued on to work in theatre. Um, you know, she's gone from, you know, uh, working with agent provo- provocateur and working as a dishwasher to being this amazing pop star. Um, and this song, I guess, is a standout powerhouse of a song and it does target the societal pressures that women face. But um, it's, it's still a little bit, I don't know, it reminds me a little bit of Baywatch. <laughs> 
Okay, this isn't going great for Paloma. <laughs> Dave, stars out of five. Uh, it's a two for me. I just feel that like so much here feels like it's either made for the trailer for a new Fifty Shades of Grey film or something some, somebody was saying on The X Factor. And I, I, I interviewed Paloma Faith once many years ago. She was cool. She is cool. She's done a lot of incredible things in her career. She's a multi-talent. I, that's why I was surprised by this. I actually went into this expecting something else and what I got just felt so cynical. If you told me that this album was assisted by AI and they just put prompts in for modern trends and less modern modern trends in some cases, I'd sadly believe you. I mean, all due respect to her and I hope that her personal life has gone a bit better, but this is not the album for me. Well, I'm sure she'd be delighted with those good wishes. What about you, Sinead? Stars <laughs> out of five. Mm, I guess earlier on I was thinking more of a three because of uh, what she put into it. You know, it is a mostly charged powerhouse of an album. She's not reinventing the wheel as such, mm-hmm. um, but it is a very unashamedly commercial, shiny pop banger that pop aficionados will probably okay. love. So stars out of five? I guess three, just about pushing okay. it three. Okay. So next up, we turn to British indie rock band uh, The Idols and their fifth album, Tank, which, according to frontman Joe Talbot, is an album of beauty and power. So, Dave, did you find a lot of uh, beauty and power here rather than the usual brutalism that you expect? Yeah, no, I did. Idols are a strange one. They're very divisive. Um, they've been around for a while now. They're fiercely prolific. This is their fifth album in seven years, I believe. They broke out in 2017. Uh, people go see them live and have an incredible communal release uh, but then there's all these debates you know are they really a punk band I mean is Joe Talbot a communist and, and all these kind of circular things that they go on the internet which I personally don't really care about I think that they have the power to break through quite brilliantly now Joe Talbot is kind of this guy with this gravel voice Idols are very much all about this kind of wounded masculinity thing. They're like men can be vulnerable too, and they do that in these kind of, like I say, these uh, very arch live shows and some of the songs as well. Um, they are hit and miss though, because they're throwing everything at you. And like, you know, this album's called Tank, and that's apparently an onomatopoeic reference to the sound that they make with their guitars. It's all being thrown at you in many different ways, but they like to slow down every now and then and give you something a bit more graceful, which I think is actually the more interesting side of Idols. Okay, well, let's listen as a counterpoint to Cry on the Dance Floor. Here is Tank from Idols and this is Dancer. So that's Tank there from Idols and that's Dancer. Sinead, that's, does that remind you of their old, themselves at their own punky best or do you see it quite different? There's a certain essence of their punky best for sure, but it has gone down a bit of a, a different kind of path. You know, it is a standout song and it's one of the previous single. It's a throbbing ecstatic anthem um, with some sexy dance floor action thrown in for good measure. Um, so not only is Joe referencing the exciting start of a, a relationship and the, apparently the, the violence that comes from the pounding heart of the dance floor and rushes through your body and gives you life from music, from love and from you. But he's I making, got all of that. Yeah, yeah he's making a <laughs> reference between <laughs> the dynamic between the band and the fans base and as well as addressing the, dyma- the dynamic of idols to be the world. So with this track, that it comes with a, a beautiful heralding surprise, which is the guest contributions to vocals from uh, James Murphy and Nancy Wang of LCD Sound System. So their soaring vocal melody provides quite a con- contrast to the pounding rhythm of that backbone. So it's, it's pure genius for me with some really nice punctuated guitar effects. There's a lot of studio wizardry going on in there as well. So it is a bit of a, a different one for them. And stars out of five for, from you? Oh, ten? 
Oh, ten. <laughs> ten out of five. Oh, yeah. Ten out of five. God. You're good at maths, too. And Dave, what about you? I think you like this, too. Yeah, I like quite a bit. It's a three and a half out of five, verging on a four for me, because idols, like I say, they do exhaust you. But I, I And I do find them more interesting when Joe Tabbitt adopts that kind of wounded lounge lizard singer crooner thing that he does. Which like, he does very well. Which he does incredibly well. And there's some great songs on this to that effect as well. As an amazing song called Grace as well. Um, recalling the Beachland Ballroom, which is one of the best tracks they've ever done from yeah. recent years. Uh, they are playing a few times here this year as well and I will say to people that if you're interested in them whatsoever live is the arena to see them this is another really strong album in the canon but I can also understand why people would come at them for accusations of commerciality they've worked with Naja Godrich on this one Kenny Beats as well I think it's still working but I can understand why people don't like them so uh, and that did you give me stars you gave me three yeah, and a three half, and a half three and a half and that's four, really, thanks it's by, by, by titles <laughs> Now we're going to Dubliner Mark Geary, who now lives in Selbridge, near a forest. So let's hear Forest. No, you never named us, never saw us fall. You thought that it was we So that's the forest from In the Time of Locust from Mark Geary. Mark Geary is an Irish singer-songwriter, Dave. That song wormed its way into your subconscious, I think. Yeah, it did, actually, and my conscience as well, because I was, I was having a very busy day uh, in a very busy, loud office uh, the other day, and I was throwing on the Mark Geary album, and I was like, look, I, all due respect to this man, he doesn't have a chance because there's just too much noise here. There's no way I'm going to be able to block out the world. But as soon as that song began, the more it went on, I found myself genuinely shutting out the world, which I didn't think was possible with this kind of folk music. Mark Geary, uh, something of an international man of mystery. I mean, like, you know, he kind of made his name in New York. Like I mean, he, like he's people know him here. He's a confidant of the frames. But he went to New York for a while, played in this place called Chine, played alongside Jeff Buckley, who'd been spoken about as well in very loving terms, of course. Um, and now finds himself back in Ireland on a sixth record. He's a very quietly prolific guy. He is a staple of the Irish music scene in many ways. But there's not that much known about him personally. I think he talks through his music. He lets his music kind of talk for himself. And this is a very strong collection of songs. But from the off, like I say, it did get its hooks into me very, very strongly. And for you, Sinead, what what are the songs about? So I guess um, he's known for his seriously open, honest lyrics, uh, you know, drawn from his own life experiences, you know, love, loss, human emotional frailty, failed relationships, tenderness, hurt, make the guy a cup of tea for God's sake. But, you know, it's it's really beautiful what, what he does. And I think perhaps being cocooned in a Selbridge cottage surrounded by the forest has leaned itself to the beautiful, swaying, delicate offerings of what this album is. And that far, it's forest track is just gorgeous. It glitters. Yeah, it seems that. very simple. It's just, yeah. just, just a man and a guitar and a wonderful yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just gentle acoustic guitar plucking, a bit of a layer of subtle piano melodies, some chords that add and build slowly to that beautiful crescendo of lured harmonies. And Glenn Hansard appears and, and joins them on, as does Carl and, and Dave Odlum. And it, it's just beautiful what they've done together. And is that representative of the rest of the album? I think so, too. Um, looking at Hollow and Spectre, again, there's a lot of swirling harmonies, uh, soft piano, piano tinkling, um, the interwoven layers of acoustic guitar. There's some nice folk country feel in some of the songs like uh, on Spectre yeah. and Release Me <clears throat> in particular as well is beautiful 
Very it's all of a piece, really. Yeah, it does feel all, all, all of kind of one big piece. There's a moment mm-hmm. as well where he kind of drifts off quite incredibly. It kind of sounds a bit like Paul Simon at times. I mean, like like he's extremely good at what he does. I mean, like he's like it's not necessarily like a guy who you're gonna stop in the street or anything, but he is. He's been around. He's had a hell of a career, and like an album like this does speak to his his level of I guess his determination and his imagination, which I found really strong as the album unfurled. It ends quite beautifully as well. I will say the book ends are really beautiful on this one. And stars out of five from you, Dave. Three and a half. Like I said, I really did appreciate the fact. That that I was able to kind of just like sink into it and forget all of the very loud distractions I had this week. Sinead? Yeah, so I guess personally when it comes to the mellower side of indie that I like, I tend to sway more towards the likes of Grizzly Bear and Big Thief. Um, But this is a beautiful shivering lush soundscape of an album, so four out of five. Well, my thanks to Dave and Sinead for today's album reviews, where we looked at The Glorification of Sadness by Paloma Faith, In the Time of Locust by Mark Geary and Tank by the band Idols. That's it for tonight's show. The programme was researched by Niall Fitzmaurice and Paula Shields. On sound is James Feeney. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator and tonight's show was produced by Sinead Egan. John Creedon is next after the news at eight.